Hello, hello. Happy New Year to our viewers. Today, I have a gentleman who I've been eager to speak with for the last three, four years since I was introduced to the Jewish revolutionary spirit by a friend. And it was so revelatory. It opened up my eyes to so many things about world history. And what I thought was something just of a coincidence about how all the Soviet revolutionaries were Jewish, little did I know. But Dr. E. Michael Jones introduced me to the rejection of logos and the embrace of the revolutionary spirit and how that leads to 2000 years of rebellion and quite frankly mass psychosis and suffering and to think that that's not all his work includes he is the most prodigious and prolific writer probably that I've ever I've ever read or studied and it, it's truly just such an honor to have him as a guest. So, Dr. Jones, thank you so much. You're welcome. Good to be here. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> since you are very generous with your time and you do a lot of interviews, I wanted to try and find something that really hadn't been done um, repeatedly and that maybe we could kind of start from scratch on. And you had not done an interview exclusively on your book, Islam and Logos. Is that correct? Yes, you're right. And that came out, actually, um, it's still very current, but I can't believe it's already been out for seven or eight years. 2016, I believe it was published. And you have been invited by the Iranian government two or three times. Is that correct? More, more than that. Uh, oh. Probably probably seven, eight, maybe 10 times I've been over there. So and if you don't want to go into this, that's fine. But like I went to Cuba with Miami University as an undergrad, my professor did her PhD on Guantanamo Bay. So the Cuban government, and she established a rapport. Do you go with an institution or because my Dutch friends are like, oh, Quentin, you got to go to Tehran. I'm like, well, guys, I'll, I'd love to, but that's not really. Uh, well, uh, yeah, yeah, there was there was a moment, OK, in history, and it was around 2013. Uh, there was a man by the name of Nader Talibzadeh. Uh, he was an Iranian uh, a few years younger than me. He he had studied film in, in uh, NYU in New York City. Uh, and in the middle of his studies, the Iranian Revolution broke out in 1979. So he left there and he went back, fought, uh, came to support the revolution, was immediately uh, thereafter the United States uh, uh, urged Iraq to attack um, Iran and uh, he was in that war. He was gassed because they were using poison gas. The Iraqis were using poison gas. His lungs were affected by that. But uh, he went on uh, to create this uh, uh, group called the New, New Horizons. Uh, and it was a, uh, at a moment in history when the United States was trying to come to some type of peaceful agreement, uh, specifically the nuclear agreement. So there was a kind of thaw in relations between the United States and Iran. And he used that to stage a bunch of really interesting conferences on Hollywood. Uh, and I went went to the second one. And uh, I, I don't want to uh, blow my own horn here, but I was really the only guy who understood anything about Hollywood at That's that time. Right. It's true. Okay. Uh, yeah. uh, and it was basically, I understood the story of the whole battle between Jews and Catholics over the Legion of Decency. So that took place in the 1930s. So he, he told me, so I gave that story. I told it many times. I gave that story and everyone was stunned. They had never heard of this before. They had never heard 
that there was a, a, a they, they thought of, oh, they're all Americans. No, we're not all Americans. We're three different kinds of Americans, Protestant, Catholic, Jew, and we're always warring with each other. And it's always kind of swept under the carpet. And this was unknown history to the most part for Catholics in America. And it was certainly unknown history for, for the Iranians. So they liked, they liked the idea. And so I'd been invited back. And during those times I would meet with Nader and we'd talk about things. And uh, he was, he was very interested in Christianity. He, he did a movie about Christ, uh, which was, uh, I, I watched it. it. It's basically the Nestorian Christ. If you've read Logos Rising, you know why Nestorianism was important for uh, Iranians, for the Persians. Uh, uh, but during one of those conferences, he he said to me, you know, I always saw this list of famous American films, and I always saw the pawnbroker, and I never knew why it was famous. Well, it was famous because the Jews broke the production code with with the pawnbroker. He didn't know that. <clears throat> so that we had this relationship and then <clears throat> the world changed, of course, when Donald Trump came in. And Donald Trump, in his stupid way, reneged on the uh, nuclear agreement. I, I was I went to Mashhad to another one of these conferences, and I told the Iranians there's there's three reasons why you don't have a nuclear agreement anymore. Uh, Sheldon Adelson, Bernard Marcus, and and uh, who's the other guy? Uh, Paul Singer. Uh, three rich Jews determine our foreign policy. And this is tragic because they don't represent the American people because Jews never represent anything but their own interests. So again, I was I was able to to complete what Nader started because he wanted a meeting of the minds. He wanted Americans and Iranians to get together because he knew that if we did get together, we could uh, get around this kind of Jewish boy this this Jewish barricade. That had been set up between the American people and the Iranian people, and that—that's precisely what we did. And I was grateful for him for that. And then tragically, he died. He—he he wow. died of uh, COVID. I personally think that uh, COVID was a bioweapon, and I think one of the victims of that bioweapon were the, the Iranians. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Shortly after it happened, a, a lot of Iranian legislators died. And and I was in the the Iranian parliament, uh, and one of the things I remembered about that parliament was uh, the air is really bad in here. Uh, it's a, a kind of ultra modern building, and the air does not circulate properly in that building. And so that would be the ideal place if you wanted to spread uh, COVID, the, the ideal place to spread it. So anyway, at that point, uh, Nader died. Uh, we we all miss him because he was one of those figures who could bring people together who could bring Iranians and Americans together in a way that is very, is very difficult to do. And now, so I continue to have this relationship. Uh, uh, we, uh, the people that who are his successors, it's really no successor. The organization doesn't really function anymore. And the times have changed. Obviously now it's not just even Trump. We could deal with Trump now is war. Now, basically, the Iranians or Israelis are at war with the Iranians. Uh, and it's not a time that's conducive to have discussions. That's the problem with war. No. So this this course corresponded to the fact that they they translated my book, Libido Dominandi, into Farsi. They'd already done a book similar to Islam and Logos. It was called Jews and Moral Subversion. Uh, they had translated that into Farsi. And we were having discussions on that. Now the whole time was ready. I'd really like to talk about libido dominandi because 
uh, Iran has a serious demographic problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a it's a sexual problem. And uh, they are victims of uh, the weaponization of pornography. They told me stories about how that was happening there. It would be a great time to discuss it. But so I was scheduled to go in November. And of course, the war broke out in you know, October 6th. And it's been postponed. But that's sort of where things stand there and how I got involved with the Iranians. Just two months ago, you mean? This past yeah, I, I was supposed to go there oh, wow. in, uh, in October, and then we're and then the war breaks out, and then we're we're nobody knows where it's going to go. You never know with wars where it's going to go. I didn't know whether Iran was going to get sucked into it immediately or whatever. We still don't know where it's going. Okay, so before we get too deep on that, it's interesting just because you, you did bring up Trump, and I'm going to tie in two seemingly unconnected uh, parts here, but. William of Ockham, you take to the woodshed, so to speak. It's all true. It's not, you know, ad hominem. But in the primary, Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump, all the DeSantis supporters say when they're challenged with some of these theories about election um, theft in 2020 and the COVID bioweapon and January 6th, they go, oh, Quentin, Ockham's razor, Ockham's razor. Well, first off, is Ron DeSantis really um, going to, how, how do we say, bring any more clarity to American contemporary politics? And second, are there any issues with Occam's razor as it's so, as we understand it? No, I would say no. Occam's razor is ancia non, non multiplicanda praetor necessitatum. So you shouldn't multiply beings without necessity. So let's keep the the hypotheses as, as limited as possible. He's famous for that, but that's not really what he's all about. That's not what he's all about. And Occam is important because uh, uh, if you read uh, Logos Rising, you know the significance of Occam because he basically uh, eclipsed Thomas Aquinas as the main scholastic thinker in the Middle Ages with tragic consequences. Mm. Occam... Uh, was uh, Aquinas was the era of the 13th century, which was the great flowering time when finally uh, Europe got over the Dark Ages. They didn't have to worry about Vikings attacking from the north or Saracens attacking from the south. They finally established cities like Paris. The uh, Paris had a university, and they could the Dominicans could sit down and think, and that was great. And the the culmination of the flowering of that was Thomas Aquinas who is still relevant to this day. Uh, If you want uh, even more relevance, uh, read my book on the dangers of beauty and how Aquinas simply revolutionized, revolutionized aesthetics by breaking with Greek models, breaking with Plato. Uh, Aquinas said, existence calls essence into being. It's one of the most profound statements in Western history, the history of philosophy, and even Thomists like uh, Etienne Gilson and Jacques Maritain didn't understand that, didn't understand the implications of that. It's all, uh, I, I draw out the implications in uh, in my book, The Dangers of Beauty. What Occam did was, uh, so I, if Aquinas is the symbol of the sunny era of the 13th century, especially in France, when everything was in great shape, uh, Occam is symbolized best by the gloomy, absolutely disastrous 14th century, 
mm. a disaster for all of Europe, largely because of the Black Plague. Uh, the Little Ice Age, the <laughs> Little Ice Age exaggerated the Black Plague. <laughs> the Black Plague is played by fleas, and everybody's freezing to death during the Little Ice Age. So they're all huddled together in close proximity, and the fleas are hopping around and they're biting them, and they got the Black Death, which took about it took off about 60% of the population of Europe. It depends on where you're talking about. If you lived in a, a, a densely populated area like Hamburg, 80 to 90% of the people died. If you lived in the country, you had a much better, better chance of surviving. So uh, I, I had the uh, great uh, fortune to eat at the convent in Munich where Occam died. It's a restaurant now. It used to be a, a Franciscan convent. He died in Munich. Did not know that. Okay. Yeah. He So he was on the lam. <laughs> Basically, he had to get out of England because his bishop was after him. And rightly so. They should have... They should have done something to Occam. I, I maybe not burn him at the stake. That's too much. But they should have taken away his license and because he, he ab- absolutely had a terrifying, terrible effect, and especially on Germany, because the main, the most famous student of William of Occam is Martin Luther, mm. because at this point, Occamism uh, was scholastic philosophy. It had taken over the schools, and it was a disaster because basically, you had this disjunction. It's called nominalism. And uh, nominalism says all categories are categories of the mind. If everything's a category of the mind, you cannot know truth. Because truth is the, uh, uh, as Aquinas said, adequatio rei et intellectum. It's the correspondence between the thing and the mind. Well, they, what we call is that the correspondence between a category of reality and a category of the mind, if they're the same thing, if they coincide, it's called the truth. If there are only categories of the mind, there's no such thing as truth. And if there's no such thing as truth, then what are we doing here? <laughs> why are we do why are we wasting our time talking to each other if we can't achieve the truth? That was the, the fatal flaw that nominalism introduced into scholastic philosophy. And Aquinas knew about it early, even earlier. It wasn't Occam, but it was another uh, nominalist, and he said, This is also blasphemy. Because you're saying that there, you cannot know the categories of God's mind. You cannot know anything about God's mind. Now, obviously, we can't know everything about God's mind because we'd have to be God to do that. Mm-hmm. But we can know some things about the mind of God. And we can know something of Logos. And what happened is, so in effect, you had Islam now being imposed on Europe in the name of nominalism. This kind of... of, of, of Exact agnosticism going by the name of piety, which is what Islam is. Islam is submission. Wow. Uh, and you can't oh, wow. know anything. So, so uh, Maimonides, the Jewish uh, medieval philosopher, said that uh, God, he did, this is what I'm saying God is an exalted caliph. Okay. That's what Islam happened during Islam. Basically, the caliph took over religion, took it away from the sons of the prophets, of the prophet, the descendants of the prophet, and then basically said, uh, truth is the opinion of the powerful. That's what the caliph does. He's the most powerful person. He ordered the, uh, the, the Quran to be codified, and they found out that they could only reduce it to nine separate versions. 
all of which contradicted each other. And the caliph said, well, even if they contradict themselves, you got to follow this. Well, that's exactly why you don't want the caliph in charge of your <laughs> philosophy, because he feels he can solve everything by force majeure. And you can't. So uh, Maimonides said the caliph, when the caliph leaves, goes for his evening ride in his carriage, he gets to the gate of his estate, and he doesn't know whether he's going to go left or right. I mean, he doesn't know. So what you're saying is God has the mind of a caliph. So how are you supposed to, so you got this combination now of a bad case of that combined with a bad case of sola scriptura, which the Muslims had before Luther had it. Mm-hmm. Okay. It led to sola scriptura or Luther's part, you know, uh, but this type of same type of thought pattern led to sola scriptura. So uh, with the Muslims earlier, so now you've got the Muslims uh, believing in sola scriptura, that all knowledge comes from the Quran. Okay. Uh, but you can't know the mind of God. You can know nothing about the mind of God. And and on top of that, there is no secondary causality. This is the other great thing that uh, was achieved. It wasn't so much Aquinas as his as his uh, mentor. Who uh, <laughs> was his mentor? The guy from Cologne, his mentor. Uh, if you want to look it up, there's no shame. I know. <laughs> you know so many. Dr. Jones. Okay. Anyway, so whatever, whatever his name was, whatever his name was, he was the he was the first guy to basically take what Aquinas take that idea seriously. In other words, if existence calls essence into being, we can learn the categories by looking at existence, and that led to the natural sciences. Okay, Albertus Magnus. I'm sorry, it finally came to me. Albert the Great was Thomas Aquinas, and he is the father of modern science because he's the first guy to look at reality as it existed because he had that confidence in reality as being suffused with logos that only comes from the incarnation. The Muslims never had it because they didn't believe in the incarnation because they were all Nestorians. So that that was the, the problem with Islam. It developed, it should have developed in the Islamic world, but it it was the Persians who were the smart Muslims anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you tab a, a guy, a character, a tragic figure like Avicenna, known as the physician, uh, one of the great philosophers uh, who ended up, you know, you go over to Iran, you have these long conversations. It was just a great, one of the great experiences of my life, being able to talk to the Iranians. And, uh, you know, uh, so the one guy tells me, yeah, I studied all the early Persian thought and they didn't want it for everybody. They carved it in a mountain and uh, they didn't want everybody to know it. It was esoteric. So you have the tragedy of Avicenna, who does all of this great work. And then the, there's a movie about him called The Physician. It's a great movie. And the end of his life, he's there sitting in the library and the library is on fire. The problem with Iran is everybody who came there burned down their libraries. And so they had real difficulty transmitting knowledge. That's why science didn't develop there. One of the many reasons why science didn't develop there. That's the tragedy of uh, uh, the, is one of the many tragedies associated with Islam. And I just, I can't tell you how fortunate I feel that Nader invited me over there and I was able to experience this firsthand. And I hope my prayer is that this issue will be resolved in the Middle East and that I can go back and that we can do the book tour of the for the Farsi edition of uh, Libido Dominandi.
do you see that as a possible? Well, first off, will you see, for instance, would you see European tourists in Tehran, or is that even more? Is that not uh, plausible? I, I did see a, a whole bunch of Germans. Well, they weren't tourists. It was a delegation run by a okay. uh, okay. politician, Keep, and they were in there to do business. They were ready. This is right about the sanctions are going to be lifted, and they want to get in there, and they want to do business, and that's what was going on. Mm. So in terms of tourists, no, I didn't see a lot of tourists. I see. So on that point, so by all means, I'm always, um, as a Christian, I'm open to being corrected, and I'm always growing and adapting as we, I think that's what a Christian and a person who follows the logos should be doing. But my impression of um, the Reagan campaign's collusion with the Ayatollah and then a 1980 um, campaign to me, I thought that was a conspiracy theory concocted by left-wing lunatics to justify Carter's dizzying fall from grace. Am I wrong? No, there was a conspiracy. With, the the okay. the, Reagan, the Reagan administration actually it was George H uh, W Bush. He had been head of the CIA. Uh, he was ended up being on the vice pre- vice presidential ticket to, with uh, with uh, Ronald Reagan. Uh, Not the rev- person H <laughs> W Bush can't stand him. <laughs> okay, so yes. we're talking about 1979. The Honest Mirabilis. There's something really significant about 1979, and one of the main things was this uh, revolution in Iran. So the the revolution takes place, and then these students take hostages. They take the Americans hostage, and uh, the the lady who uh, was in charge, she was uh, from Philadelphia or an Iranian from Philadelphia. Her father was there. She learned perfect English and she was the translator. And she wrote a book one, which she said, basically, uh, we, we thought it would last for three days, but they kept getting messages from the headquarters of the revolution. No, continue it, continue it. Well, we now know that George H.W. Bush paid the, uh, or the mullahs, the Iranians, the revolutionaries, uh, $24 million to prolong the hostage crisis. And that basically got Jimmy Carter de-elected. He, he did not win his second term because of that. So that it's it was a conspiracy, but it was real. So, okay, a couple points, just because I don't want to be a sycophant. And not, and Barbara, was it Honiger, Henniger, the source, because Christopher Hitchens wrote about this in The Nation in 1987. And his source was Barbara Honiger, who's a paranormal expert, who's an astrologer, um, and said that she thought that the satellites were focusing on Reagan and moving the clouds and all this other uh, just delusional conspiracy talk. Um, Why did the, because the congressional investigation did, I don't think they ever came up with this $24 million number. So was that just kind of a charade? I mean, what, I guess. What was was, was the the hearings? Yes, the hearings. Hearings are generally a charade. I don't know the details, but they're generally a charade. Yeah. Okay, uh, just, but th- okay. this is the story. Everybody knows the story. It was twenty-four million, and it was uh, George H. W. Bush was the bagman, and it was to prolong the uh, the revol the the, um, the hostage crisis. So you think Carter would have won had not been for that? We'll never know, will we? We'll never know. I mean, I remember <laughs> yeah. I was I was there when it was happening, and they just dragged this thing out. You know. America held hostage day twenty two hundred and seventeen. I mean, they just beat the hell out of that, you know. And so, the I guess what I heard 
was it uh, Jimmy Carter wasn't sufficiently groveling to Israel. That's always the problem with the president. He's gone on to write a book called Israel, the Apartheid State. So he's no friend of Israel, even though he did broker that peace deal. So I think that, that was that's what was going on. The, they wanted the, the neoconservatives were in charge now with Reagan. Not completely the way it was with George W. Bush, but pretty much in charge. That was their great moment. Well, this that's, is- <laughs> that's when they were brought into the tent. Midge Decker, Ms. Neocon, a wife of Norman Pedaritz, Mr. Neocon, the power couple, the Neocon power couple. She wrote a memoir <laughs> that came out exactly on 9 11. <laughs> mm. So nobody ever read it. Nobody ever heard of it. In which she said, Yeah, we. Uh, we were invited to the table, we meaning the Jews. I was shocked that the Republicans wanted Jews. Well, they wanted Jew money. That's what they wanted, you know, and they let them in. And as Father Hesburgh said, if you let them in, they take over. And that's exactly what happened to conservatism and the Republican Party. The Jews took over. Reagan, I feel like, was able to strike a pose as this um more uh, mediating influence. You know, Henry Kissinger was supposedly persona non grata uh, because Phyllis Schlafly had Reagan's ear when he was in the White House. And uh, to her credit, I don't know how you feel about her, but she has she had Kissinger's number 60 years ago. She always thought he was a disgrace. Um, I, I interviewed Phyllis Schlafly shortly before she died. Oh, you did? I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, and uh, she not only had Kissinger's number, she had the number of the Republican Party, which is basically it's the loser party. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was there uh, when uh, I was working for the Christian coalition. Uh, that's when we had Protestants. The Protestants have disappeared as a political force. Uh, but that's when they, they were significant because that was Pat Robertson's operation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember walking down the hallway. I think it was must have been 92. May, it could have been 96. When he, Anyway, and uh, there's Ralph Reed head of the Christian coalition walking toward us. And my friend Pat says, Oh, we're going to vote for Pat Buchanan, aren't we? And <laughs> Ralph Reed gave him this look like, what are you, an idiot? The fix is in Pat. <laughs> we're going to nominate Bob Dole. And Bob Dole's job is to lose. But the real job is to purge the party of Buchananites. That's uh, Phyllis Schlafly nailed that. She understood that completely. And she was, I've called her the abused wife of the Republican Party because they always, you know, the Republicans would come home drunk and they'd beat her up. And then in the morning, she'd forgive them and go out and make work for the Republican Party again. It's a tragedy. Someone that bright. She was, by the way, I think she was a lady who lost her identity. She's a Catholic. When she was 17 years old, she was the brightest girl in that Catholic school in St. Louis. And that's when Lindbergh gave the famous speech about three groups trying to drag us into the war. The uh, the English, the Roosevelt administration, and the Jews. And when he said the word Jew, he touched the third rail of politics, and that was the end of him. She was America first. That was her real political allegiance and after the war she had to become a conservative which was the antithesis of america first and she never achieved the she a great achievement she she killed the equal rights amendment i mean that is one of the most astounding achievements in american political history but she never really realized her potential because she didn't know who she was sun tzu said if if you don't know who you are 
and you can't identify the enemy, you will lose every battle. Phyllis didn't know that she was a Catholic America firster. And she didn't know the Jews were her enemy. And she lost, I mean, she won the ERA, but that was a, a momentary victory. Uh, that's that's the tragedy of Phyllis Schlafly. Well, she didn't, okay, so her uh, antagonism towards second wave feminism, which, well, you know, they make it pretty easy to antagonize, let's be fair. But uh, and to, to, the fact that she and Steinem get mentioned in the same sentence is so disrespectful. Steinem is a twit. I'm sorry. There's no other way to put it. No, she's a she's a CIA asset. Correct. And, and femi- feminism was the uh, a Jewish op, uh, basically that took class conflict and mm-hmm. brought it into the family to have family conflict to turn men against women because the Jews weakened the majority population. Whatever they do, this kind of stuff. So to put no, obviously Phyllis Schlafly is the exact opposite. But there's a there's a lady, a Jewish lady actually, who wrote a book called Sweetheart of the Moral Majority. Mm. Uh, and it came out it was about Phyllis Schlafly how basically she said well Phyllis Schlafly is the ideal feminist you you ladies talk about it but she actually went out and did it uh uh but you know they're yeah. they're opposite ends of the political spectrum it's Catholics versus Jews you know you're never going they're never going to come together they believe I wrote a book called the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit mm. which, which will explain why that has been true for 2,000 years so going back to ancient times, Islam spread like wildfire through regions kind of on the peripherals of the empire that had been weakened by heresy. And right. is it now when I say I've told people before, oh, you know, Islam is basically just repackaged Nestorianism. They go, oh, that's not quite true. Islam, they think Jesus, they think, you know, he ascended. But basically the go- you know the golden legend the medieval legend uh that says that muhammad was supposedly a uh catholic cardinal that was not voted as pope and so to get vengeance he turned to nestorianism and concocted pretty much the great to, because to me islam achieved what the jewish revolutionary activity could not okay you're right it was uh it's it's basically the Nestorian heresy. I mean, it's a lot of other things. What we're we're seeing now research doing into uh, into the origins of Islam that are really revealing and significant. And I had conversations with Iranians about this. The, the, the Iranians are convinced that uh, a man by the name of Salman al Farsi wrote wrote the Quran because the the story the the standard story is that. The angel Gabriel flew down and whispered the Quran, uh, lured by word, into Muhammad's ear. He was illiterate, and he wrote it all down. Uh, that's a hard uh, story to maintain, okay? Uh, because okay. <laughs> what? Because it, as soon as you get involved in scholarship, you're going to find some disturbing facts. So at one of the times I was invited to Iran, it was uh, actually a contest, a writing contest, where they wanted me to write an essay about the first shura of the Quran. Well, I didn't know anything about the first shura, so I called up my friend who was the head of the Islamic Studies program in the uh, Warsaw, the University of Warsaw, and he said, it's a Syriac Christian prayer. Well, okay, it is, okay? And so what you're seeing is this emergence 
how this really happened. Gabriel Reynolds, by the side, Gabriel Saeed Reynolds, a Notre Dame professor, has written a number of good books about the sources of the of the Quran. Uh, and basically, the story that he tells is that you've got the Arabian Peninsula, which is inaccessible. It's all desert. Nobody goes there. An Arab, a tribe of Arabs. Nobody's ever heard of these people before. And then that's one group. And then you have the Hejaz, which is the shoreline of the Red Sea. And that's where they speak Syriac. And the gospel spreads according to ships, basically, because you can't get through to these places. And the gospel has been translated into Syriac at this point. And the the Muslims, uh, the Arabs, they're not Muslim, they're Arabs. Uh, they, they're hearing these stories. And they're fascinated by these stories because this is the time where you have the triumph of monotheism. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because these old the idol worshippers, it's just over. It's not going to work anymore. They're having, they're hearing these stories. The the Bible has not been translated into Arabic. It's only been translated into Syriac. It's related, but it's exactly the type of thing where you hear enough that you're intrigued by the story, but you can't get the story straight because you don't have the language. And not only that, you don't have the categories because you're speaking a Semitic language and there are no, they don't have philosophical categories in that language. So now you have a gospel that says, when St. John brings the two traditions together, he brings Greek philosophy and Hebrew history together uh, in the Gospel of St. John, which begins in Greek, in Arche and Halogos. In the beginning, there was Logos, Kai Logos and Prostheon, and Logos is with God, Kai Logos and Theos, and Logos is God. Now, that is a really sophisticated piece of thinking that is based on Greek metaphysics, and it changed the world. Now, I'm saying that there is no way that an Arab can understand this. But it's got great stories. If you focus on the Old Testament, like that, that story of J, uh, David and Bathsheba, I mean, she must have been one hot chick and he sleeps with her. It's, <laughs> it's a great story. He gets in trouble with his, you know. Uh, uh, and so what they do is they try and come up with their own version. That's, that's called the Quran. So in the Quran, uh, we don't, you can't translate Logos. We don't even know what Logos means because our word is, uh, in the beginning, there was the word. That's what we read when we read the Gospel of St. John. I read that my entire life. I didn't know what it meant until I studied Greek. And I realized there were five pages of Greek translations of that one word. So what do they say? Well, he's talking about a book. A book is something you can hold in your hand. You have to listen to people who have a very concrete language. If I can hold it in my hand, I understand it. And the whole point, of, by the way, of Logos Rising is getting away from this concrete thinking to abstract thinking, epitomized by the word Logos. Heraclitus is the first one who really broke away from the pre-Socratics in that regard. So let's, oh, it's a book. Oh, I, I get it now. There's a book in heaven. And that book is the Quran. And and that's what we're talking about now. I think that this is the the way they had to interpret a concept that they had no categories to understand. The concept is logos; it turns into a book. There's also the story of the Eucharist. Well, that gets turned into a flying table. There's a flying table in the Quran that uh, brings meals around uh, because it's got to be concrete. Because if it's not concrete, the Arabs don't understand it. That's that's what happened here. 
that the origins of the Quran. What so there's a man named Jay Smith. He's a PhD in theology. He was born to missionary parents in um northern India, which from my understanding, he said is the most vehement, vehemently Christophobic area pretty much in the world. You know, North Africa, you'll most of the Muslims there are focused on foreign policy decisions of the West. Palestinians obviously focused on Israeli um aggression. Uh the Turks will be focused on, you know, uh, geopolitical machinations with the Europeans, but in, in Muslims in Northern India are truly the most anti-Christian demographic that he'd ever encountered. And the fact that he grew up with tr speaking to these people about Christ, he was kind of uh, forged in fire, if you will. And he's very adamant that for all this Christ mythicism to say, Jesus wasn't real, you got to be kidding me. I mean, he he's written. I mean, he is adamant that Muhammad wasn't real. Would you go that far? No, I think it was a real person. I think it was a real person, but I don't think he wrote the Quran. Thank you. Okay, or 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 was he a kind of a collage or kind of an amalgam? Uh, he may have been. I've I've heard very convincing. I think he was. I think he was a real person. Okay. I think he was a real person. Okay. Uh, but I I I think uh. I don't. I don't. I don't think he wrote the Quran. I don't. It, literally, people cannot write books. Who did okay. a sect of, the, of Jewish? Uh, I wouldn't say well refugees, but of Jews in the Arab Arabian Peninsula. There are all kinds of people that he had around him that were better uh, capable of writing this book than, than he was. I just read a book about uh, Shakespeare. Now, was there a real Shakespeare? Uh, sure, there was. Sure, there was. He was an actor. Yes, uh, he was probably illiterate too. Uh, did he write all of those plays? Uh, probably not. Probably not. And what I'm saying, what the the book is coming up with, is that there was an incredibly literate, uh, poetically gifted group of people there that were all were hanging out with each other uh, and were writing poetry together. And uh, basically, the, the Shakespeare's oeuvre was basically these people uh, writing under uh, a pseudonym, namely Shakespeare. They were all performed in plays. So Lord De Vere, well, De Vere is one of them. Uh, you know, the uh, Marlowe, Christopher Marlowe. It was like a joint production because you're talking about a theater. A theater is a joint production. You don't just do it. It's not like you sit in your room by yourself. That's a theater. You got to collaborate with a lot of people, and it naturally lends itself to this type of collaborative effort when it comes to writing. So I suspect that that may be something similar to what happened with with uh, the Quran. That it was a collaborative effort on the part of people, and maybe Salman Al Farsi was one one of the most significant of these people. It could be, but we we've got to have more research. And the problem is that Islam is not does not lend itself to source research because it's a, it has to maintain itself as a kind of fundamentalism. And uh, I ran into, I ran into that fundamentalism uh, very clearly when I was in Iran, talking to mullahs was very difficult uh, because of this solar scripture. So to give you like one example, I'm, I'm in Mashhad. I'm trying to have this, the guy, the guy basically, they kind of ambushed me, put the mullah in front of me and the TV cameras start rolling Gee, <laughs> and and uh, it's, it's fine with me. I'd already talked to the guy. I knew who he was. But anyway, I'm trying. he's saying, well, so what's the relationship between faith and reason? Well, that's a good topic. And I started to talk about the wheel. 
I mean, we're on the Eurasian landmass. This is where the wheel was invented. I tried to say this is kind of natural reason. He said, no, that's not right. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, a prophet invented the wheel. I said, wait a minute. How do you know this? This is this is 13,000 years ago. How, how do you know that a prophet? It's in the Hadith. Well, the Hadith are the commentary on the, or I said, look, I, I don't accept the Quran as canonical. I'm not going to accept the Hadith. Where do we go from here? The answer is we go nowhere. You reach a, you hit a brick wall when you talk to someone like this because of the sola scriptura. In other words, what is logos? Logos would be the sum of all knowledge. Well, that's become a book now in the Islamic mind that is exists in heaven. And it's called the Quran. So the Quran is the source of all knowledge. So you deduce from that that anything that you know has to come from the Quran. So therefore, the wheel had to be invented by a prophet. That's where the, the logic is. So the interesting thing was at that point, I was invited to a uh, an enzyme factory in Golestan. And so I'm like, you know, I'm a big cheese because I come from America. They give me the tour of the enzyme factory. And then we sit down and they say, Here's the two people that put it together. There's a chemist and an entrepreneur. The chemist knows how to make the enzymes. The entrepreneur uh, has knows how to market them. And that's how the enzyme factory came into existence. So I felt like saying to the mullah, well, did, did a prophet invent the enzyme factory? No, it didn't. It, it didn't. It, it didn't come about that way. But he wasn't there, so I didn't get to, to oh. I thought he was good. Did you ask him directly? Because that could have been disastrous. Okay, because I'm not no, sure. No, because by that, by the time I got to the enzyme factory, he had left and gone back to Qualm. So okay. uh, I never saw him again. So uh, do you, this is just my conjecture. Again, like you said, because Islam doesn't lend itself to scholarly rigor very well. It seems to me that Jewish revolutionary activity was starting to become less and less successful. And so they had to have a way to really kind of co-opt the goyim and voila islam is that too conspiratorial oh, I, that, that's an interesting idea it is an interesting idea because uh the the uh jews and the muslims are always traditionally allies until mm -hmm. israel the state of israel gets started and then that's completely opposite but they were allies throughout their period the jews were collaborating with the moors uh, to prevent the reconquista of Spain. Uh, the Jews were kicked out of Spain because of that and other reasons. And when they, as soon as they got to, they went to uh, Turkey and that resulted in Shabbatai Zivi, who was a classic example of this Jewish revolutionary spirit, or they went to Amsterdam and they became collaborators in that, the Protestant revolutionary movement uh, there. So that would make sense. That's an interesting theory, but uh, uh, you have to do more research into it. And that's difficult, I think, uh, because of getting down to the sources here. Well, part you know? of it, what's concerned, well, I mean, this is always a concern, but it's happening in Protestant circles too now. The hatred of St. Paul is a big red flag that somebody is on a path to destruction, is about to go down the black hole of heresy, because they say that Paul was a Roman uh, propagandist, that he had no respect. The, the feminists are now saying that uh, Paul was a misogynist, yada, yada, yada. And I mean, Paul, Paul was an anti-Semite. Did you know that? Oh, the, no, the, the, the ADL would have put him on the list, I think. 
Oh, that, that's new. What else? <laughs> Gosh. Um, so not to be flippant, but ser- but you, sometimes we just have to laugh at the at the absurdity. So, and I have a, a friend. Um, I'm friendly with this writer. Hamad Subani is his name. It's the secret history of Iran. A very good book. He's Sunni Muslim. He told me, no, no, Quentin. Islam arose. God helped Islam to formulate because Christians were not adequately fighting Jewish occult practices that Jews had gravitated towards after the crucifixion, after they rejected Christ at Golgotha. That sounds to me the exact opposite. The Jews wanted (laughs) to ally with the Muslims because they were a very effective way of destroying Christian culture to this day, to this day. I mean, this, so when I, again, when I was in Golestan, I met with the uh, Ayatollah Shakrut, a very influential Ayatollah. Uh, first thing out of his mouth is he starts bad-mouthing the Saudis. You know, this is not real Islam, you know. And I said to him, well, how did it spread? He said, by the sword. And that's, they still haven't gotten over it. I mean, there, there may be momentary, and Israel is determined to drive everybody together. Everybody comes together because everybody hates Israel. And even the Saudis... <laughs> The Saudis and the Iranians will come together for a while, but it's not going to last because, look, it's been 1,500 years, and the Sunnis still consider the Iranians heretics, the the the, the Shia heretics. I, I told them, I said, you've got a better chance to become a Catholic than you do to become a, a Sunni. You haven't worked it. There are a lot more in common, and that's really an interesting, intriguing idea because I'm getting all kinds of reports that Iranians are converting to Christianity. At this point, now I, I brought that up with Nader, and he was skeptical because he said that a lot of these are house churches, mm-hmm. and he said the house church is a place where the the guy the Iranian converts on Monday, on Tuesday he becomes a minister, and on Wednesday he founds his own church, and uh, he gets funding from the CIA to do it. So I'm skeptical. Uh, it can be weaponized that regard, but there still are these intriguing stories about Iranians uh, uh, converting, which I'd really like to pursue uh, by by going over there and talking to people. I had a because back to CIA and you know infiltration. I had a professor in college that she and she was an atheist, and she said, "Quentin, what am I supposed to do with this?" Martin Luther said, "Reason is the whore of the devil. How can I even?" you know, engage with that. And at the time I said, you know, no, Dr. So-and-so that's, I, I, I was raised Lutheran. So I, of course I was naturally tried to defend Martin Luther, but I look back now, I feel differently and partially because of your, well, mostly because of your work, you did 90% of the work for me, which I'm very grateful for. But Martin Luther said that because why? Because he was a nominalist, and he was a uh, he was a disciple of William of Ockham, and William of Ockham hated reason. Mm. This isn't uh, oh, this. So the age of Ockham is the age when science and religion split up. At this point, you have these uh, religion becomes very emotional, and I'm talking about the devo- like the the 30 day retreat of uh, Ignatius of Loyola that the Jesuits are doing, the uh, the emotional devotional paintings that came about at this time, you're focusing on generating emotions 
of love toward God through art, uh, through through extra spiritual exercises, and you're not emphasizing the logos anymore because that's going off to science. This is the same age, so Galileo and and these uh, emotional retreat things are two sides of the same coin, and it's the split that was brought about by William of Ockham. And I think that that's what Luther is manifesting. He hates reason. He did say uh, reason was a whore. Uh, He did create this uh, religion of the enslaved will. Mm. He did do it. And if you read my, my chapter in Degenerate Moderns on Luther, you know why he did it. He basically could not control his passions, could never control his passions, whether it was uh, eating, drinking, whether it was lust, whether it was anger. He was always problematic in terms of controlling. So finally, he's getting drunk. He's playing the guitar. He's locked up in the Vartborg. And, you know, he's not praying. He stopped praying when he was still a Catholic priest because he was too busy. And the temptations just come roaring in. And he just says, I can't, I can't stop it anymore. I know I'm going to get married. And he marries the nun, Katarina von Bora. And at that point, they both broke their vows. They both broke solemn vows in doing this. Uh, and at that point, he wrote the, the enslaved will. The enslaved will is basically him saying, look, I can't do it, so therefore no one could do it. And so sin boldly, peca, peca fortiter, uh, and God will forgive you even more boldly. And that was a disaster for the German people who were still suffering from it. The, Ger- the German people have never gotten over that split, the split no. between Catholics and Protestants. I know that for a fact because it's part plays into the book I just wrote called The Holocaust Narrative. It plays into Hitler. It plays into a lot of different, different themes here that we can talk about. It plays into Hegel. If you read the chapter on Hegel, in the Logos Rising, you see he's a loyal son. He was a Lutheran. He studied Lutheran theology. He was He's a Lutheran theologian. That's what he's aspiring to be. He wants to be a Lutheran minister. Uh, and But he's got this great philosophical mind. And the problem is he got had an affair with his chambermaid, just like Luther. You know, he has an affair with the chambermaid. And... Uh, he's finishing the phenomenology. Napoleon rides into town after winning, defeating the Prussians at the Battle of Jena. He's looking there, writing it up. And at the mo- very moment of the culmination, the concatenation of all these events, Frau Borchardt comes in and says, uh, I'm pregnant. And at that point, Luther uh, Hegel falls back on the default setting of Lutheranism, which is to say, God did it. I didn't do it. God did it. I'm just a mule. God, I just go whichever. God beats me. I I have no free will in the matter. Well, no, you do. (laughs) You do. And this is just an excuse to to shift blame away from you. That's the tragedy of German thought all the way up to this day. And it goes back to William of Ockham's influence on Luther. I'm not trying to, obviously Luther had trouble with his passions, but it was the Occamist philosophy, nominalism, that allowed him to uh, justify this egregious violation of man's rational nature. And and I, well, and this might be a little, um, a little too soon to call because 500 years is quite a long time, 
but I would say just the nature of Scandinavian society and its agnosticism and just with the midway, I mean, the Lutheranism, I would say, is kind of in the twilight of its existence. It's 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 over. Okay, yeah. it's over. I mean, you want to you want to see the death throes? Watch the movies of Ingmar Bergman. That's Swedish Lutheranism going down the drain. Because hey, Bergman couldn't control his sexual appetite either. You know, this is this is significant. I'm glad we're talking about this right now because an important book just came out in French called Le Défait de l'Empire, de l'Empire, the defeat of the empire, and it's about the American Empire. The writer is Emmanuel Todt, T-O-D-D. It's only in French, so I'm reading it in French. Uh, But he says basically that what happened in America is the collapse of Protestantism. America was a Protestant country over this period of time. uh, uh, Protestantism, I like to say, it evaporated. After 500 years, it evaporated. As as early, I told you about going down to Virginia Beach and working with Pat Robertson. That was in the 1990s. As late as the 1990s, there was still a a Protestant presence in these tele- televangelists, okay? That's gone. It's gone. No one has replaced it. It's gone. It evaporated. And he said that's why the main reason why the empire is falling. Now, there's something profound about that. Uh, that I think he, like a Frenchman, he's not going to just do the superficial stuff. He's looking into the hidden grammar here, mm-hmm. kind of like Jacques Derrida, except that he, you can, he's comprehensible. His prose is comprehensible. <laughs> Thank but, the Lord. But I, but I think that this, this is what I've been telling, I've been telling everyone. It evaporated. It's not there. So you, what you have in Scandinavian countries is people like Frodi Mityord, the, the Norwegian. Uh, there used to, when he was born, there was an established, the, the Lutheran church was the established church of Norway. That stopped being, and he's got an identity crisis. Mm-hmm. I mean, isn't it enough? You speak Norwegian. How many people speak Norwegian? Isn't that enough to be part of a club? No, because he needed that kind of religious background to it. That's gone. And so Frodi became a white boy. And what you're seeing is this resurgence. Uh, nature abhors a vacuum. In America, the same thing. In England, the same thing. In Germany, the same thing. In all of these former Protestant countries, you now have a resurgence of racial thinking because nature abhors a vacuum. I've said before a million times, what's a white boy? It's a Protestant who doesn't go to church anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what, okay, so the, I'm going to tie two things in together. I'd love to tell if I could, I'd love to have her as a guest, but Camille Paglia in the early 90s, she fired, I mean, she just went guns blazing at Andrea Dworkin and Catherine McKinnon, who she said was the odd couple of, of feminist Stalinism. And I want to say, no, no, Camille, McKin- Catherine McKinnon is is a quintessential wasp, you know, a pur- of Puritan stock. That's really, and then she t- pairs up with let it all hang out, radical feminist Andrea Dworkin you know, who presents the body as something repugnant, they're two sides of the same coin. Puritanism is a tool of Jewish revolutionary power. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And the Puritans were Judaizers. And so, but but, I mean, let's give them credit. 
uh, I know uh, Andrea Dworkin is a very damaged. I mean, she must have had some horrendous sexual experience because she taught yes. the human body, like sexual intercourse, every all sexual intercourse is rape. It's yes. well, it, it, something happened to her. I don't know what it is. I think she's dead now, but uh, yeah, she, she was well, she was molested by a neighbor. She was raped by, in Amsterdam by she was uh medically raped when she was in Rikers. She was arrested at a Vietnam protest and when they went for her exam, it was about the most horrific story. Right. I, it made me gasp. So th- that woman had the most torturous life. Right. That I can and, think. And, she, and she was a Jew and she had no way of dealing with it. And so she had this raging feminism, but she got it right. Pornography is bad. Yes. The interesting thing at that point, who turned on them when they got traction? Who turned on them? Dershowitz. Betty for Dan. Betty did too? Oh, did yeah. Know that. Okay. Oh, yeah. And and blood is thicker, runs thicker than water. And so it was the Jew in Betty for Dan, knowing that Jews were behind pornography, that attacked our fellow feminists, our fellow sisters in the movement. That was a really important moment. And it's in Libido Dominandi. Well, there's some, when uh, Dershowitz helped kill McKinnon, because she's still teaching, because I have friends that go to University of Michigan Law School. She's still teaching. Um, but she was up for tenure at... I want to say Yale, Dershowitz helped kill that. So there was kind of this, you know, Dorothy, are you a good witch or a bad witch? Are you a Dershowitz was the good Jew and McKenna was the bad. No, she's a radical. No, this this shows that feminism was a Jewish operation. Dershowitz is, look, what do I have to say about Dershowitz? Now it turns out he is a child molester. We got seven women coming forward on the Epstein plane. He said, oh, I never took off my underwear. No, we know, Alan, that you did that. He was the man... It's on YouTube. He defended Deep Throat as freedom of speech. And then flash forward, he's arguing with Buckley. No, this is freedom of speech. No, obscenity has never been considered freedom of speech. And he's defending Deep Throat. 50 years later, he's standing next to Donald Trump, suppressing any criticism of Israel on campuses. That's exactly the Jewish trajectory here. You know, they want free speech when they're out of power. As soon as they get in power, they impose draconian uh, hate speech laws on anyone who disagrees with them. I can't tell you. Well, uh, you know how I feel about Alan Dershowitz. But you're a but you, you're a Christ-like man, so we're just going <laughs> to leave it there. So on that uh, on that point, the Protestant Marxist professors. I highlighted this in in the book because I was so curious about it. David Hawks, um, who you you quote and uh, interacted with quite a bit, something about the Protestant Marxist kind of that. Uh, what do you say? T- they're teaming up. Uh, <laughs> David Haw- David Hawks is a crazy combination, but I mean, <laughs> I think he's he's a Marxist and a Lutheran and a nominalist, and I think there is a crazy way in which they all fit together. Uh, he believes that everything is a category of the mind. He's going to jump on me. Every time I try and pin him down, he says, no, I don't believe that. But that's that's that was this crazy thing, reading David Hawks. He kind of was stalking me for a while, and I, I think he <laughs> gave up. But uh, uh, I reviewed a couple of his books. It, it was a throwback to a, a, a completely uh, a lost world of, like, early Lutheranism. Mm. Combined with there, there was so add so it's not just Lutheranism. Add Luther and Thomas Munzer and the 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 uh, the peasant revolt and the kind of proto-Marxism that Thomas Munzer was uh, promoting. 
Thomas Mutzer was a hero in the day to air, the German Democratic Republic, because he was led a revolution. You put all that together uh, with nominalism as the common denominator, and that's that's David Hawkes. You said that Marxist. I don't want to put. I don't want to misquote you, but you mentioned the Zeitgeist in, in this part of the book, and Marxist have at least a comprehension of logos. That's the first time I've heard that because I always think that Marxists really don't have. Because they reject, let's say, I want children to be able to comparative religion or comparative mythology because it's good to have your mind be able to comprehend a grand narrative, whether that's a Native American grand narrative, an Islamic grand narrative, a Buddhist grand narrative, just to understand the macrocosm of history. I would always say that Marxists don't have that capacity. So you disagree? Marx could explain everything. Okay, I mean, he, he thought he could. That okay. was the big. That was the big attraction of Marxism. This should explain everything, everything, you know, all, all things could be reduced to class conflict and the means of production. Uh, it's in retrospect, it looked incredibly provincial because he's really talking about England. He's not even talking about Germany. Mm-hmm. He's talking about the working class in England and uh, the class consciousness there and him sitting in the British library. But I think that was the attraction. Uh, all this. So Aldous Huxley talked about that also in that book called uh, The God That Failed. All of those people talked about how you had this bulletproof consciousness that no one could ever, you know, disprove you. You win every argument. I think that's that was Marxism. That's the way they felt about Marxism. Wow. Yeah. So they, in their mind, they do have a concept of the Logos. It's a very provincial one. But it's a completely reductive, materialistic understanding of the human being, which eliminates everything characteristically human. But that that's what happened when Hegel died in 1831. And that was the end, basically, of philosophy. And that's the beginning of materialism. And so Marx comes along over a generation later and he just says, well, everybody's a materialist. I love Hegel. Let's put them together. We'll have dialectical materialism. You can't have dialectical materialism. Dialectic is based on Geist, the movement of Geist, which is spirit. It doesn't work that way with matter. But everyone was so enthralled. This was the age of great technological advance. So if you were born uh, when Hegel died, 1830, fastest way you could get around on land was a horse, was on a horse. If you born then and you died uh, in 1890, you had the train and you were traveling, the steam engine, all of this type of just revol- the things that revolutionized uh, human life. So it's big change and everybody was impressed by it. You know, I perhaps I've become a little too jaded, but whenever even the modernist or the post-structuralist or basically anybody in public life <laughs> it starts to have an infatuation with a tradition, even if it's a very nice tradition, I start to get dubious. What I'm referring to is Sufism, which seems all the rage of even a lot of, you know, agnostics and heretics and we say, um, really people that don't really know a, a thing about real. That's why Christopher Hitchens cracks me up. A, a great stylist, but the, that man knew nothing about religion. Never took the time to put his nose to the ground. He didn't know anything about philosophy. That's the first the first chapter of Logos Rising deals with these four great atheists. They're all ignoramuses Mm -hmm. when it came to philosophy, especially Hitchens. 
and so they, this, it's, it's, if you're an Englishman, it's a virtue to be ignorant when it comes to philosophy. It's called British empiricism. <laughs> it's true, but ouch, ouch. It's <laughs> I say this to my English friends all the time, and they they understand it. Metaphysics is a cuss word when you're an English philosopher. The English uh, are programmatically stupid when it comes to philosophy. They never recovered from William of Ockham, as far as I can tell. Is that the okay. But they are great poets. So give them credit where credit's due. They are great poets. Beauty is a transcendental. Uh, just as the truth is a transcendental, beauty is a transcendental. And the English achieve transcendent states through beauty. So, you know, God bless them. They have never gotten over the Reformation. Uh, they have a kind of they cal they cultivate a kind of superficiality and ethnocentrism that kills any transcendental thought. And the guess the classic example of that is the guy who wrote on beauty. Who what's his name now? The guy that dyed his hair blonde. Um. <laughs> oh, Milo. No, 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 no. I'm talking about. Uh, Okay, I, 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 why am I, why am I drawing a blank here? He wrote a lot of books on beauty. He was very. Uh, oh, wrote, Roger Scruton. Roger Scruton, exactly. That Thank wasn't you real. For, that was a dye job. He's, he's a redhead. Oh goodness! You didn't know that, huh? Okay. Anyway, well, yeah, he's a redhead by nature. <laughs> he's also from the lower classes, <laughs> middle class, and he aspired to be uh, an upper class Englishman, and he loved fox hunting. <laughs> and and the 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 English aristocrats that I know or know of used to refer to him as the nutty professor. Anyway, the, 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 so he was a, a man of great gifts, especially when it came to music. I mean, much much more gifted than I am. I mean, I can play the mandolin and I can play a million Irish tunes, but he was a had a much deeper grasp and per could perform things I can't perform. And he got uh, Das Rheingold completely wrong, completely 100% wrong because he was too, he was ethnocentric. Ethnocentrism is a virtue if you're an Englishman, especially if you want to be an English aristocrat because you look down on the entire world. And the one thing you really uh, have will laugh it up about is German metaphysics. Ha! Charming. On that note, I, I sent an email when I first uh, invited you to come on. Um, I sent you a little clip of my interview with Ann Coulter, where I introduced her to the Jewish revolutionary spirit. And you emailed me back when I was saying, you know, I explained to her some things that were kind of wrong with Samuel Huntington's premise about uh, Catholic colonialist being inherently corrupt and dysfunctional compared with the good, you know, British and Dutch colonialism. And you said, yes, that's her ethnic identity. Now, she's Presbyterian Scottish on her mother's side and Irish Catholic on her father's, so not exactly the English aristocrat. But I bring this up because I've noticed in her commentary, she's starting to get caught off. And she's saying this. She's admitting this herself. She's starting to get surprised, like Trump winning the primary again. Um, things like people questioning the 2020 election. She's starting to get caught off guard, I think, by a lot of developments in American politics. I would think that's maybe a little bit in connection to what you're saying about how the Brits go metaphysics and eh, eh, don't care. Don't want to hear it. La, la, la. Is that am I on to something? Uh, 
that's something to think about. You you caught me off guard by bringing up Ann Coulter. I, 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 uh, I'm not sure. I mean, the the only exception to this rule was Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Okay, who, who we mostly know as the as a poet, but uh, he was also a junkie. He was an opium addict, which didn't help him. Uh, but in spite of all that, he was the only Englishman who was ever open to metaphysics, specifically German metaphysics. He went to Germany, uh, took Wordsworth with him. Uh, Wordsworth was a typical Englishman. He got to Germany and he holed up in a room for the entire winter and didn't didn't talk to anyone and just felt homesick and wrote poems about how homesick he felt there with his sister. Whereas Coleridge went out and met with the actual people. This is in The Dangers of Beauty, if you want the reference to it. And he spoke an abysmal German, but at least he tried. And like, you know, it's not, it's like, it's, it's like a monkey riding a motorcycle. It's not that he does a great job of it. It's just a, 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 a astounding that he can ride it at all. And that's the way it is an Englishman with uh, like Coleridge speaking German. But he made contact with the people and he brought back that, that sense that there's something going on here and that metaphysics is not just a cuss word. And he tried to implement it. And he came up with basically the best explanation of aesthetics, of beauty in the English language. He said it's unity in multeity, and he got that right. That's exactly right. That's the whole story. You can unpack it. I tried to unpack it in uh, The Dangers of Beauty. So what does Roger Scruton say? He he wrote a number of things on beauty, on aesthetics, and he said some people say that it's unity in multiplicity. (laughs) That's not just some people. That's it. (laughs) And you just blew it because you're not focused. I don't know why you're not focusing. Maybe you're thinking. Maybe you're thinking about fox hunting when he wrote that. I don't know. <laughs> but but uh, didn't really he didn't get did. it. Hmm? Sobern didn't really either have any metaphysical um, consideration. As much as I like him, who Joe Sobern? So, yeah. No, of course not. He was a journalist. Yeah, I'm mean, very but, very. But erudition doesn't. Yeah, I'm learning. He wrote a book on Shakespeare. But it was just like the the, the outlier. Now there, there, we could talk long and hard about Joe Sobern, but that's that's a, a a different story, different episode. Yes, his book um, Edward Shakespeare Alias, I think, about Edward De Vere. Yes, yeah, so I'm learning that erudition doesn't mean you have any consideration for metaphysics. Those two things are not, not synonymous. No, no, yes. it's not. It's not. So back to. How do we bring? We brought up Hitchens in regard. Oh, because a lot of these poets with their fascination with Sufism. So does Sufism? How does it come into? Um, I'd like to think that it's in line with Logos and the Persian philosophical, the three Magi. But I actually find that Sufism has a lot of this transcendentalist, nihilist, Kabbalah. Right, uh, right. It's a kind I'm, of mis- it's a kind of mysticism, but yes. it also it also relates to what happened in basically with the Persian mind. So the Arabs conquer Persia and they are stunned that these camel jockeys can conquer a great civilization that goes all the way back to Cyrus the Great and Darius and those people. So they go into a state of shock that lasts 200 years. Mm. And that ends when uh, Ferdowsi writes the Shahnameh, the longest poem in the world uh, and the, the Persian epic, the Persian national epic. There is not one arabic word in the shahnameh mm-hmm. and he created the persian language in the same way that luther created the german language with his translation of the bible and uh, as a result the uh, 
the Persians never gave up their language. They didn't adopt Arabic. They speak Farsi to this day, thanks to Ferdowsi. Okay, so what happened at this point is that you had these Persians who also started being philosophers, and they all ended up getting their heads chopped off. Surawardi is the classic example. He met uh, Saladin's son, uh, was talking about philosophy. Saladin didn't like it, so he had the son chop his head off. At that point, the Persians said, maybe we should take a course correction here, and they got involved with poetry. And that was the greatest, they've written the greatest poetry in the world. And you have people like Hafez, which uh, you can read. Goethe was obsessed with Hafez. He wrote the Osvestika Divan with Hafez in mind. I visited Hafez's tomb. When, and so what you, when you get to know the Persian, you know, finally you get to know them and they say, well, do you know about Hafez? And then they, and they say no. And then they say, well, we, everyone reads this in school. We read Ferdozi, but if you read the real thing, the greatest tragedy, according to Ferdozi, is the Arabic conquest of the great Persian empire. So how did they deal with it? I think that uh, you, you shift into poetry. Poetry is not so dangerous. And then you shift into mysticism and you have this kind of mystical religion that doesn't threaten the power structure. And I think that's where the Sufis came in. So, because there's almost a little bit of that nihilism, nominalism that actually has a strict, because the mystics love to say, oh, it feels Buddhist. It feels like the yogis, that uh, the whirling dervish kind of transcendental annihilation, which is really not very, um, frankly, anti-intellectual for all their beautiful poetry. There is, is, you know, there is this sense of annihilation. There's the via negativa, which uh, Aquinas talks about, but you can confront it. If if you get to the point of the Trinity, what can you say about the Trinity? You get this as deep theological as you can get. And sometimes all you can say is, well, it's the via negativa. Well, he's not that. And he's not that. And he's not that, you know, that's you're, you're reaching to something when you get that high a level of theology uh, it, it naturally shends, uh, shades into a kind of mysticism where it's all uh, not what you think it is. You can't express God's being. You can experience it, but you can't express it. And let's just leave it at that. And then it could also be a cop-out, you know. I think this is the the, the devotion that I talked about, the, the split that Occam caused between... Uh, science and devotion devotion was heading in that kind of mystical direction you one type of mystical sexual mystical sexual union with god uh which is not something you're going to talk about the closest you have is like the, the this poem poetry of john of the cross who were general mystics uh Teresa of avila this type of thing but that naturally poetry and mysticism and that's i think where the the persians went so that they wouldn't get their heads chopped off Oh, so very strategic. Okay. No political philosophy couldn't do that. And that there are uh, Aminat's uh, history. He's a Baha'i, but he wrote a history of Iran. He said the the, the tragedy of uh, Persian thought is that they, they never developed a political philosophy because it was too dangerous. Wow. Okay. Well, I mean, even as... Even as the the Safavid, would that have been who kind of came westward 
and took over like the precursor. Well, there's always there's always this pendulum swing in in Persian culture between uh, the the West and Islam. Mm-hmm. So you have a Westernizer like the Shah, and he brings about the opposite, which is the Ayatollah uh, Khomeini, the Revolution of seventy nine. But uh, he was using uh, Syed Qutb as his model. This is the Islamic Brotherhood. This is not Persian. This is Egyptian. This is this is so it's Islamic again, and now I think there's going to be a swing back. There's a you know the war is blocking everything, but you're having. I think that it's time to give uh, President Ahmadinejad a chance again, because I think he's a Persian nationalist, and I think he could moderate. I said I said to my Iranian friends, are we ever going to come to a mean, the golden mean here? Are we constantly condemned to oscillate between one extreme and the other? This constant pendulum swing, because that's in effect the Iranian history. You know, it's the West and science, and then that leads to oxygenosis and and uh, West toxification, and then you swing back to this fundamentalist uh, Islamic version, and that causes a reaction and go back in the. That's that's the dialogue that I hope to have. That's the dialogue that I think Nader might have been able to foster. We'll see if it happens. We'll see if it happens. If if Allah wills it, it will happen. That's simple. <laughs> well said. About ten more minutes, and we'll wrap up. I usually do ninety minutes. I don't want to keep your whole afternoon. And then we're good, good. good. Um, I didn't know we were doing ninety minutes, but it's okay. been it's great conversation. So let's just let's wrap it up and perfect. Yep. Just the la- last couple of things I wanted to um touch on your brain. The Council of Florence, and I should have just, okay, I'll be honest. Some things I'm like, oh, I'm not going to look it up. Let's see what he has because, because you know, Wikipedia may or may not give me the full story So <laughs> on some things. And so the Council of Florence, what's, what transpired? Well, it, uh, it's it, first of all, you can read the chapter on this in Baron Metal. It's part of my history of capitalism. But uh, basically, the F- Council of Florence, uh, the, the Turks are approaching uh Constantinople, the uh, Eastern Emperor says, "We got. It. I need help, so we're going to resolve the schism." So he sent his people to the Council of Florence, and they did resolve it. Okay, they resolved the uh, filioque clause, whatever it was, it was separating. But one of the unexpected things is that they they brought a guy named George Gamisthos with them, and he was the uh, heir of the Neoplatonic tradition, which is magic. Uh-huh. Uh, 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 Julian the Apostate was interested in this. His teacher was one of these magicians. And now you injected magic into European culture through, via the Medici. So Cosimo de' Medici told uh, Ficino to translate the Hermetic text into Latin. And that's the beginning of magic in, in Europe. That was one of the main things that happened. And uh, it's also known as alchemy. And uh George Soros said, finance is alchemy. And that's why it was relevant to my history of uh, capitalism. So that's, I think that's the significance of the Council of Florence. But in, but you brought it up in Islam and Logos into Islam is the scourge of God. You called it in Byzantium, um, was infected with Neoplatonistic magic. Right, that's true. That, I guess I'd never heard that Byzantium was particularly, um, let me say, uh, vulnerable to neoplatonism of that of that yeah yes uh, yes it was nature. yes it was it was yeah 
well, that was the tradition. The whole tradition of uh, Neoplatonism, uh, you know, it deteriorated because mm. at a certain point you had uh, the uh, Philo Judaeus, mm-hmm. Philo, a Jew who was a, a Platonist at the same time. And at that point, one of those great disjunctures in history took place because now you didn't need Plato anymore because you, oh, had, Jesus, I see. you had Jesus Christ. And this upset the philosophers. It still upsets people. I mean, one of my moments with the long conversation with this Iranian woman, uh, you know, let's just talk. I don't, I don't want to represent Christianity. I don't think you should represent Islam. Let's just talk like two human beings. And it came down to, she accepted Logos. She said, you're right, it's Logos. And then she told me she wasn't a Muslim anymore. You know, okay, so I know what you're not. So what are you? Well, she didn't know what she was. And then she had this moment where she says, well, I, I'm I'm miserable. What should I do? And I said, you should be baptized. And at that point, she blew up at me and said, you deceived me. You lied to me. I thought we were just talking about philosophy. And I said, look, I, I didn't, I'm not responsible for this. The history of philosophy changed. Jesus Christ arrived and he changed everything. Is that surprising? Because at that point you didn't. uh, So what happened is that uh, the Platonism continued down the road, even though it was obsolete. It's obsolete now. Mm -hmm. Uh, Augusta knew that. He tried to otium liberality. I'm just going to meditate on forms and I will rise no, you didn't. You're weighed down by your concupiscence. All the memories you had of sleeping with your concubine drag you down. But you don't need to go up because you have Jesus Christ who came down to save you. Well, I didn't do it. It's not my idea. It was Christ's idea. He's the one who intervened in human history. I can't change that. I can't change that. It changed the game. It's not a complete break because, as I said, St. John took Greek philosophy and he baptized it by first of all writing in Greek and then writing that metaphysical prologue to his gospel. So it wasn't all a waste of time. But if you persisted with Platonism after Jesus Christ, you ended up in magic. And you end up in magic, you're going to deal with the devil sooner or later. And Even that's white magic, yes. And that's exactly what happened to Byzantium. That tradition of Platonism continued all the way out till they were just wiped off the map. By the by, the Turks, the Council of Florence didn't help. Even Count Dracula couldn't save him. He showed up, and he was uh, trying to defend Christendom. It, it was over. The empire was over. Sad, sad. Sorry. Wow. Well, on that note, about how you said Christ basically does the work for us and allows us to not waste our time with white magic or any other nonsense. I think that's a great place to wrap up, Doctor Jones. Any. Last thoughts. I want to give you the table just to say anything that can be even unrelated. I'm just so thankful. Well, th- thank you for having me. Uh, it was it was a great discussion. Thank you. So much. Uh, it, it went to ninety. I didn't even know it was ninety minutes. Normally, I I start hallucinating at sixty minutes. So if I if I hallucinated after sixty minutes, I apologize. But it was a really discussion. It was a focused discussion, and I wish you well. I don't know anything about you. You said you were a Lutheran. I don't know anything about you and where you are now and what you're planning to do. Uh, I, I'm I, Lutheran. I, Lutheran. I, I I'm not inspired by. I, I've spent a lot of time in Italy this uh, past year, and so um, going to St. Francis's. Excuse, if I could talk, St. Francis' tomb. Um, 
pretty cured, helpful lifetime. Cured you, cured you of your Lutheranism. Well, uh, that's yes. what Italy's there to do. <laughs> yes. It did it to the Germans. Every German went down there, like Goethe went down there to Naples. It cured them all. But uh, so anyway, uh, whatever whatever your your journey is, I wish you well. I wish you well. Thank you so much and to our viewers. God bless. I will put this on my channel. Um, and then I hope you enjoy.